Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a bright spring morning here in the capital is Georgina Thomas. Georgina is the director of GGT Solutions, a London-based management consultancy firm. Uh, Georgina, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you so much for joining us on the show. You're very welcome and a big hello to all the listeners today. Yes, fantastic. It certainly is a uh, lovely day for it. Uh, record, we're recording this uh, podcast in late May uh, 2021. Much better weather than we've had recently, I have to say. Yes, indeed it is. The weather is absolutely beautiful today, so it um, brings a lot of hope, I think. It does, and a lot of optimism that with the uh, the roadmap out of lockdown now, there's a clear route out of this uh, pandemic that we found ourselves in the grip of um, over the course of the last 14 months. And just looking back over the uh, the previous year, uh, Georgina, I'd be interested to understand to what extent all of this has affected you and affected your business as well. Well, well I think I, I, I don't think anyone expected how devastating this uh, coronavirus and pandemic and what I term as a, a black swan event, something that we will never, ever forget. I mean, it's going to be a story we tell our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. But um, for me, as running a, a training company and training other people to actually be positive and to be great leaders, we had to think of solutions. Um, we were fortunate because we are a training company. We had everything in place to move away from face-to-face delivery and move very quickly into online delivery. And so it was almost a blessing in disguise for, for, for myself and also for lots of other businesses that we have been speaking to and, and working alongside and collaborating with. So we, we saw from both sides, both businesses that were desperately struggling and we stepped in and were able to help them to rethink their plan to become agile, to become lean, to, to, to really focus on the things they could do rather than on the things they couldn't do. And, um, and, and in that sense, it's also allowed GGT to survive and thrive. So, um, um, I, 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 I was in a good position and a very positive position. So COVID didn't damage my business um, as, as such, although we saw a lot of damage and destruction going on around us. It just goes to show, doesn't it, that there is still a silver lining in even the darkest cloud. And I think the fact that some businesses have seized upon opportunities and been able to grow in this time is a real example of that. Um, so thinking back over the, your experience guiding your business through this crisis, would you say that you've learned an awful lot as a business leader from that experience that you've had? Oh, yes, indeed. Absolutely. Um, 
you know, I, I, I speak about being agile, you know, it's not as if we had a very smooth transition. We, we you know, we felt the fear. We, we absolutely felt the fear when, when we realized lockdown was happening. Um, our programs, which are developed to be delivered over a course of a year, sometimes two years, face-to-face, work, working with, with, with people, um, these people, all of a sudden, they were going to be working from home. And they were not familiar with online um, online way of learning, in a sense. And so it was a it was a huge transition for us. We were also not used to delivering and training and facilitating and getting the message across online. It was something we had never ever done. So we felt the fear, you know. And I think most businesses will feel fear in in their journey. And we felt the fear, but we also, as you as you say, there is always a silver lining, and it's often not the silver lining we thought about. But when we are put into a situation where the only thing we can do is, is look to the silver lining and and respond, um, yes, as leaders, we had to had to learn to respond rather than react. We had to learn a different way of communicating with our audience. We had to learn, even down to practicing our body language, we, we were very aware of, of what we didn't know and how much we needed to know. And, um, and we, we sought advice and help from, from others who had been doing it a lot longer than us and could lead, lead the way for us as well. So um, we asked for help where we needed it and we you know survived and thrived through asking for the help improving the communication channels and speaking to other business leaders recognizing that we're not alone has been incredibly important hasn't it particularly as you say when it comes to alleviating anxieties understanding what it is that you need to do and also looking after one's mental health and well-being as well because when you're leading a team that's having to adapt to a whole new working pattern maybe working from home and therefore you can't see them in the office every day you're having to communicate over new platforms it becomes a lot harder doesn't it to manage that side of things yes indeed it does i mean we have to be very I think we've always been aware of well-being. It, it, it's the key and essence of life to keep ourselves physically and, and mentally as well as we can be. And that was definitely brought to the forefront, not just of our business, but for the clients that we had on board. And in fact, what one of the things we adopted very, very quickly um, during the lockdown um, was to bring on board specialists who delivered well-being training, um, so we ourselves should become um, knowledgeable of, of what it meant to support others through definitely, you know, being isolated and having to work from home, um, but also to support those that struggled with the whole digital platform that caused in, at, the, at the beginning stage, it caused a lot of stress for people, people who were not used to, you know, um, online platforms such as Zoom or Teams or using Slack. It became quite stressful for people. So we very quickly um, 
brought on solutions to support people through understanding digitalization and being able to cope with it mentally as well. So, um, yes, we had to, you know, really learn at a lightning speed about wellness, well-being, what needed to be put in place in order to keep people well and safe. Uh, it was very, very important and still remains to be very important. And actually, uh, as our business, um, we we partner with well-being organizations because that type of business, well-being, has absolutely exploded. So um, for those listeners who are in the well-being type of business, be that healthy eating or exercising or or meditation or mindfulness, it's a fantastic place to be right now as a business. It is for sure. And one thing that we've certainly been putting a lot of emphasis on, not just on this show, but at other events here at the uh, the Leaders' Council as well in recent weeks, is that CEOs, executives and business leaders also fall into that category of you need to look after your well-being as well. And it's so easy when you're at the uh, the helm of a company to sort of get sucked into the world of running the business. You feel you have to be there all of the time. You feel you're looking after everything everybody else's mental health and you don't maybe give enough consideration to your own well-being and take a step back and recharge the batteries as and when you need to. In your position, Georgina, at the top of your business, have you found it easy to do that as and when required, take that step back? I, I, I have because I have great networks around me. Um, so, so I, 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 I always say I'm, I'm very blessed. I, I have great people around me. I have great leaders around me who, when I felt slightly out of control and how do I manage this, I had people that I could speak to that could talk me through how to manage but also how to mentally cope with some of the challenges we were facing, especially at the early side of our, of our, our business. And I would say, you're absolutely right because we as leaders feel we need to take control of everything. But that actually is not necessary when we have good people around us. We can, you know, if we if we are feeling undue stress and, and, and anxiety, look to those people that can take some of that away from you. We don't we have to learn to how we feel and manage on a day-by-day basis what we can as leaders because everyone is coming to you for um, you know for leadership they, they want to know from you what do we do next and it really is about prioritizing your own capacity and knowing on a day-by-day basis what is it that you can cope with and feel okay to put something down until tomorrow and I, I, I had to learn that myself. I'm a, I'm a doer. If there's something to be done, I want to do it immediately. But I, I, I found myself feeling quite worn out, both mentally and, and, and physically. So I, I've been taught now how to, what is on your plate for today that you can cope with and everything else can be put aside until tomorrow. So I, I think it, for me, that strategy works. It doesn't all need to be done. And, people we must teach 
responsibility and accountability to others so they can also hold 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 the helm once in a while. I think that's really important. Because as much as we feel we have to inspire and motivate as leaders, we can be inspired and motivated just as much by the team around us as well. And I think that through that transparency, as you say, through showing that vulnerable side to that team around you, you find it so much easier in a leadership role to take people with you on that journey and get them to buy into your vision so much more as a result, don't you? Uh, 100% you do, because it's important, especially in times of of, um, disaster, that people realize actually we are all in the same boat together. Um, And to to show your true self to people, actually they come forward when they recognize that as a leader, you still have fear and vulnerabilities and, and off days. And Hiding that uh, does, doesn't actually help help your, your your team members or yourself, and definitely being able to show transparency of your true self has um, definitely in in our business has helped people to step step forward and step up, and that's been that's been fantastic for us. So encouraging to hear that um, as well going forward, because it's going to be so, so important as we move out of COVID. People are going to have to keep standing up and being counted for and thinking about that post-COVID world in just a little bit more detail, Georgina, before we do wrap up, because I'm conscious that we're beginning to run short of time. Um, I'd like to understand that. As we now see a clearer path forward with a successful vaccination program and hopefully an irreversible roadmap out of social restrictions, um, what is it that you're hoping for your business, GGT Solutions, to achieve over the coming months? And indeed, where do you see yourselves this time next year as we hopefully leave the pandemic behind? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm also hoping that we are able to, as a business, as with all businesses, develop and grow our product, but more so, more than anything, learn from this experience. I, I, I want to make sure that we have great um, contingency plans in place. I want to make sure that we develop uh, a, a different type of type of client, maybe to reach out more to individuals who might need our help. You know, we do a lot of business training, and I know there are lots and lots of startups at the moment, and I would like to be able to reach out to the individual startup rather than to a large organization who have a host of individuals who are on one of their business programs. So I'm hoping that in the next year, we're able to reach audiences who on a one-to-one basis can come and ask for some business advice and and be supported through their journey. And, And I would like to see that side of our business develop and grow. I would also like to think about partnership collaboration and how we as a a relatively small organization partner with other organizations who can complement what we do so we become a much larger network and a much larger uh, collaborative platform for, for people seeking great training solutions. Certainly seems like exciting times for the business and the industry at large as well, Georgina. And um, I think as we start to see as well, 
the picture become clear over the coming one months what's that's going to mean for the sector it would be wonderful to catch up and have you back on the show with us to see what's going on because it's been a real eye-opener having you join us today and just have a little view as to what's been happening over the previous year well that that would be absolutely great and it would be a reflection is always a great thing isn't it when we realize how far mm. we have all actually come regardless of you know the ups and downs so i that would be my absolute pleasure to, to to share again in a year's time and 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 i hope and pray we, we all have um great goals and ambitions moving forward for the next year outside of um covid so you know i just uh continue having hope and um pass on all my good wishes to all those who are listening Indeed, and that positivity is infectious. And to all of our listeners, we are almost there, but do please continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on. And Georgina, of course, that goes for yourself as well and all at the business. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Georgina Thomas, Director of GGT Solutions, onto today's show. Um, Coming up next on the programme today, we're going to be joined by former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett, who will be offering his take on what has been going on over the previous 14 months. He'll be joining us on the show next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery 
whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms 
about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would, people have criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of, thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also 
that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.